0: Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. If you don't have one at home, uh, there are some Bibles on the back table. Feel free to grab one on your way out. I'd love for you to have that. So Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry... And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Well, when I was a little kid, I was a pretty uh, goody-two-shoes type kid. Um, I didn't make a lot of noise. I was pretty quiet. Didn't get into a lot of trouble. I used my manners. Um, Really good kid, but there was one event in my life that kind of changed people's perception of me as this good quiet little kid. Uh, I went to a party at my aunt and uncle's house and uh, my aunt prepared this game for us to play and I did something that I thought was pretty funny but nobody else really thought it was very funny. There was this egg toss that we were going to play and uh, we had to stand a certain distance from a partner and we were supposed to just throw the egg back and forth as gently as possible so the egg didn't break and so I don't know who my partner was but I'm standing there and maybe threw a few back and forth. And then I see my uncle a few spaces down on the other side. And I wind up and I throw it basically as hard as I can at my uncle. I thought that was really funny. Nobody else was laughing though. I got into some trouble. And I think the thing that people were surprised about was because I was usually quiet and well-behaved and they were surprised that I would do something like that. And I think that's kind of how we might approach this passage. We look at what Jesus does in this passage, and many people who have read this have thought to themselves, is is this really Jesus who's doing this? I mean, we know Jesus is someone who's kind, and sometimes we maybe think of him as being soft-spoken and quiet and nice, and yet in this story, he's very bold, very violent. In this cursing of the fig tree, it's the only time in Scripture that we have a record of where Jesus does a destructive miracle rather than a constructive miracle, where his miracle destroys something. Some people have looked at this and said, Jesus is just being capricious. He's just, you know, this fig tree doesn't have any fruit on it, so he's angry, just curses it, and he's just being vengeful. But I think that if we look at this passage Closer. I think that we'll see that this isn't really about the fig tree at all. The story is a, it tells about the fig tree and what goes there, but it's not about the fig tree. The fig tree is a picture of what's about to happen. In this passage, we see uh, what's called a sandwich structure. And what we see, like a sandwich, it has bread on the top, bread on the bottom, and then uh, meat or something else in the middle. And in this story, we have the account of the fig tree on top, The account of the cleansing of the temple in the middle. And then we go back to the account of the fig tree. When you have a sandwich, it's about what's in the middle, right? I mean, we talk about a sandwich. We don't talk about a rye bread sandwich or Italian bread sandwich. We talk about a turkey sandwich or a tuna sandwich. It's all about what's in the middle. And the same is true for this passage. It's all about what's in the middle. And the fig tree illustrates what's in the middle here. And so this fig tree is going to serve as a metaphor or a picture of what's going to happen to the temple. So let's walk through this story a little bit. So Jesus comes to the fig tree. He's looking for something to eat and he doesn't find anything. Now it's interesting that he doesn't find anything and he's looking for something. Because it says in the text that it's not the season for figs. So then we think to ourselves, so if it's not the season for figs, why is Jesus looking for something to eat on this fig tree? And further, if it's not the season for figs, why does he curse the fig tree when it doesn't have any figs on it? Well, I think we need to understand something about fig trees to understand what's happening here. Fig trees were very common in Jesus' day. And after the last harvest in in August, somewhere between August and mid-October, before wintertime, the fig tree would put put out uh, buds. And these buds would remain on the tree until springtime, throughout the winter. And then in the springtime, what would happen, these buds would swell up and they would become these little green knob type things called pagium. And then after the pagium formed on the tree, then the leaves would shoot out and then the pagium would eventually ripen and become a fig. And what's interesting is that natives would often eat these pagium, even though they weren't fully ripe fruit and Probably if we tasted them, they wouldn't be very good. But natives would often eat these pagium. So what Jesus is looking for here is probably not the fully ripened fruit, the fig, because it wasn't the season for figs. He was probably looking for the pagum, these green little knobs. And what's deceptive about this tree is usually here's the order. You have the pagium and then the shoot and then the leaves give off come off. So the pogiums are there, then the leaves come into into full force. But what's deceptive here is that there's leaves, but there's no pogium. And what that means is that there's not going to be any fruit for this tree. And so he curses this tree because it appears to be alive. It's giving off the, the shoots, the leaves, but there's no fruit underneath. And this, for Jesus, is going to be a picture of the temple and the religious establishment. That it appears to be alive. It's giving off signs of life, but really there's no fruit underneath. Remember how we ended the passage that we looked at last week. Verse 11 of this chapter. It says, And he, Jesus, entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelfth. So he goes into the temple and he's looking around at everything. What is he looking for? I think he's looking for fruit. He's looking for evidence of spiritual life. And certainly there were signs of some life in this temple. This was a huge temple that Herod had reconstructed and it was still under construction in Jesus' day. It was a massive structure. The court of the Gentiles, which is the place where the events of this chapter occur, was about 35 acres in size. It was a huge structure. In 66 AD, sometime after the death of Jesus, the year that the temple was completed, it was reported that 255,000 plus lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem for Passover that year. There were thousands and thousands of people that entered into the temple throughout the year. There were so many people that came for uh, worship that not everyone could even stay in the city. And so anyone who would enter into the temple would find signs of life. There was a bustling commerce. There were people buying, people selling. This was the place to be. And all of these things were for the purpose of worship. They were selling sacrifices. Probably certifying that they were blameless, that they had uh, no spots on them. They were exchanging currency so that the people could pay the, the temple tax in their proper currency. And so it had signs of life, but yet there was no fruit there. And so Jesus overturns the money changers, begins to drive the buyers and the sellers out. So why was Jesus angry? Now, I don't think it was necessarily the fact that people sold sacrifices. That's something that people would need. They would need a sacrifice. They might need the currency exchange. So I don't think it's what's happening, the process per se. Part of it could be the fact that perhaps they were taking advantage of those who were buying. Perhaps they were dishonest. It says in Jesus calls them robbers. So that could be part of it, that they were dishonest and uh, charging excessive prices. But Jesus is not only angry at the sellers. He's also angry at the buyers. He doesn't just drive out the sellers. He drives out the buyers as well, So it's not simply that Jesus is angry that the sellers are taking, taking advantage of the buyers. There's something to do with the buyers too. And then I think in general, the thing that he's most angry about is that this has become a, com- a place of commerce, a marketplace. The temple, a place that was supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of worship, it has become a marketplace. But there's also something deeper than that. After Jesus overturns the money changers, drives the buyers and sellers out, he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made it a den of robbers. When he says this, he's quoting a passage from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 6, or 56, verses 6 to 7. That passage goes like this. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord So Jesus in the Old Testament teach that God is concerned not just about Israel, but about all the nations. Yes, God made a special relationship with Israel. But even going back to Abraham, God promised Abraham that through your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we see throughout the Old Testament that God chose to use people who were not Jewish. People who were Gentiles from the nations. People like Rahab and Ruth and Jethro, Job. We see that God sent Jonah to the Ninevites who were Gentiles, wicked, terrible people. And God sent Jonah to them to preach a message of repentance and then they repented and God had mercy on them. So God cares about all the nations. It's not just about Israel. But the Jews in Jesus' day had a different conception altogether. They had very little care or concern for the Gentiles. They considered the Gentiles particularly the Romans, as people who were their enemies. Now remember this, all this stuff that's happening here, all this commerce is happening in the court of the Gentiles. And this was the, place, the only place where the Gentiles could enter. They couldn't go any deeper into the temple. In fact, there was a sign that was written in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, so nobody missed it. That said, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Any anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So imagine a devout Gentile, and in the New Testament we see a number of devout Gentiles like the centurion, the Canaanite woman. Imagine they want to go to the temple to pray, to offer a sacrifice. And they enter into the temple and all they see is buying and selling. All they see is people taking advantage of one another. It's hardly a place for worship. Hardly a place where they could meet with God. And so I would doubt that many Gentiles ever even entered into the doors of that temple. And probably the Jews wanted to keep it that way. Apparently many Jewish people during that time frame believed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would drive out all the Gentiles from Jerusalem and from the temple. That the Romans and everyone who was associated with them, they would be driven out and only Jews would be in the temple. But Jesus, the Messiah, comes and He doesn't drive out Gentiles. He drives out Jews. And He sets the stage for the Gentiles To enter in. See, we we talk about this passage and we talk about it as the cleansing of the temple. Even the title in my in in my Bible says Jesus cleanses the temple. But I think if we think about it a little bit deeper, it's not really a cleansing at all. It's a cursing. Jesus isn't cleansing the temple. Yes, he goes in and, and overturns the money changers. Drives people out. But it's not as if he comes in and says, okay, there's, you're doing a great job. You just need to change a few things. Just let the Gentiles in. Get rid of the sellers and buyers. You'll be all fine. Now he says, this was intended to be a house of prayer. That's why we have a temple. So that it would be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you've made it into a den of robbers. It's a temple that's not simply to be fixed, it's to be replaced. When the church first opened, I uh, found these plants at Home Depot and they were called Arctic Kiwis. And uh, these, for these plants, you had to have a male one and a female one. And I planted them in the back by my office going up the steps And the first year, they grew a little bit. And the second year, they really took off. And they were putting off all kinds of shoots. They were taking over my railing. uh, Got to a point where I had to put, like, a trellis in. And they, they were just everywhere. But the only problem was, they didn't produce any fruit. And so I read online that you had to wait a few years before then to produce fruit. So I waited the next year. And once again, they... Grew bigger and bigger than ever. But there's no fruit. And so I had all these vines that were taking over the back uh, by my office there. And finally, after the fourth year, I was these are useless. So I ripped them up. Jesus told a similar parable in Luke chapter 13. He said, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Remember, if a fig tree doesn't have the buds, the pagium, it's not going to produce fruit. It's useless. It's good for nothing. And that's what the temple that the Jews have created is. It's useless. It's meant to be a place where God meets with mankind, where all the nations come and find the God of Israel. But it's become a den of robbers. So all of their sacrifices, all of the money, and the countless hours that's been spent building this massive temple, it's for nothing. And so, in essence, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the temple. And then they go out of the city for the night. And then in the morning, they go back into the city. And Jesus' disciples see the fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. And they find that this fig tree is withered. That it's gone. Apparently, the disciples were surprised by this, which find quite interesting due to the fact that this is towards the ends of of jesus life they've seen jesus do so many amazing miracles but they're surprised by this but jesus answers in a way that to me is kind of baffling it's kind of surprising my uh, tradition is when i'm preparing a message i print out the passage that i'm looking at and occasionally in the past i've printed out the wrong passage you know i've Be preaching in Exodus, Exodus chapter eight, and I'll print out Genesis chapter eight, and I'll start reading it. Like this doesn't seem right. And as I was reading this passage this week, and I got to the end of the passage, I was like, "Did I? Did something happen here? Did I print out the wrong passage here?" Because it seems like Jesus' response is really surprising. The disciples are surprised at this cursing of the fig tree. They're surprised that it's withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. And he talks about having faith that say to this mountain, Move and it'll be thrown into the depths of the sea. He talks about forgiveness. Talks about prayer. It's like so what does that have to do with the fig tree? But think about it for a moment. Now imagine that you're a devout Jew. Imagine you're a disciple. And you think about your worship. And everything that you know about how to worship God is kind of centered around the temple. The sacrifices. The place where the most religious holy people were. The place of pilgrimage is where you would go to celebrate the festivals. The temple was the center of your worship. The current temple, Herod's temple, was kind of the hallmark of, Of the Jewish religion. It was their masterpiece so to speak. And yet Jesus is going to come. And he overturns the money changers. He's going to overturn their understanding. Of what it means to relate to God. The temple. The place where. God was supposed to meet with man. Jesus calls it a den of robbers. And yet Jesus is going to have the. He's going to encourage the disciples to have faith in him. Not just to have faith in the temple, but to have faith in him. And he says to them, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So he talks about this mountain being thrown into the depths of the sea. Now the context of that could, this mountain could be a number of different mountains. We don't know this for sure. But one possibility is it could be the fortress of Herodian. If you are in Bethany on the Mount of Olives and you're looking south uh, south of Jerusalem, you'll see the fortress of Herodian. And for the fortress of Herodian to build the fortress of Herodion, Herod actually took uh, a smaller hill and removed that hill to build a kind of a fortress around his fortress or a, a, an area around his fortress. And so when Jesus says this, that you can move a mountain, you send a mountain in the, the sea, he might be indicating that when you believe in God, you can do greater things than Herod. Just like Herod built this fortress. Into this And took this mountain away. Just like Herod built this temple. When you have faith in me. You can do even greater things. That he took all this effort. And all this money to do these things. You can just say the word. By the power of God you can do it. Another possibility is it could be. That Jesus is talking about the temple mount itself. And Jesus is going to do away with the temple. As a, the centerpiece of Israel's religion. And perhaps he could be saying to them, just like I'm going to do away with the temple, you can throw a mountain into the depths of the sea. We don't know exactly what he meant by that. But what's clear is, he's teaching the disciples that when you have faith in me, when you believe in the Father, you can do things that you could never do through the temple. You can produce fruit in your life when you believe in me, when you pray to me. And the reason for that is because they don't need the temple anymore. The reason they don't need the temple is because Jesus is a new temple. He's the place where God meets with mankind. In John chapter 2 The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, in Jesus' person, humanity meets divinity. In Jesus' blood, forgiveness is offered once and for all so you don't need to enter into the temple to offer sacrifices every year. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil that that was torn in the temple indicating that no longer did mankind need to be separated from God. No longer did mankind need to meet with God in the temple. Now they could meet with Him in the person of Jesus Christ. And through faith in Him, nothing would be impossible for those who followed him. See, here's the point. Jesus had to overturn the money changers. He had to drive out the buyers and the sellers to show people that the old temple was broken and they needed a new temple. And Here's what that means for us today. Sometimes Jesus overturns the tables of our lives to show us that he's all that we need. Sometimes Jesus overturns the tables of our lives to show us that He's all that we need. No matter who you are, no matter what your story is, no matter what you've brought here today, there's one thing that you need today more than anything else, and His name is Jesus. No matter what you're going through, He will be with you. He is the one who never changes. Who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 46 says, God is a refuge and a strength and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a lot of change that was happening in Jesus day for his disciples, for devout Jews who wanted to honor God. Their understanding of what it meant to relate to God was completely being transformed. And yet Jesus says, Just believe in me. Just trust in me. Don't doubt. And you can do things you could never do on your own. Sometimes Jesus will take drastic measures in our life, he'll overturn the tables. Sometimes it might be even violent as He rips parts of our lives away that are keeping us from Him. That as He overturns the tables to show us what we need and to show us that the only one that we need is Him. Sometimes Jesus overturns the tables of our lives to show us that He's all we need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we can find life and hope in you. We thank you that we no longer have to enter into a temple. There's no longer a sign that says stay out. There's no longer a curtain that separates us from you. But through your blood and through your love for us, we can have a relationship with you. We can know you. We can pray to you. And You can do amazing things through us. Lord, I pray that You would do in our lives whatever You need to do to show us that we need You. If there's things in our lives that are keeping us from You, things that we're hoping in, that we're trusting in, that are leading us in a direction away from You, Lord, we just pray that You'd overturn those in our lives and bring us back to You so that we would Find life, find hope in you and you alone. In Christ's name I pray, amen.